Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to episode 154 of the show with Dr. Jen Rayner. You can follow her on Twitter at JR underscore Rayner, R-A-Y-N-E-R. More about my guest, Jen, in a moment. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for downloading it. If you're new, welcome. I'm Osha. This is my show. Each and every week I talk with someone here on the show. I basically speak with someone who's figured out a way to get paid to do what they love, but then we kind of... We just talk about life, the universe, and everything uh, kind of from there. I'm able to make this show because of the people that support on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. You are the fine people that make this show work, and thank you for your patience. I finally have an extra episode for you. It will either be out right now or it'll come tomorrow. I'll let you know. Uh, I'll let you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's a uh, it's a story that I told at Story Club. Um with a bit of a preamble that I didn't talk about on the Story Club podcast. There's a bit of stuff there. Uh, it's about the day I lost my mind, basically. But if you are a, a Patreon subscriber, you will find that. Uh, just check your email and I'll let you know the link to download that um, coming in the next 24 to 48 hours. So thank you so very much. If you do want to be a supporter of the show, patreon.com slash osha. Support for as little as much or as you like. Support for nothing. I don't mind. Support for a buck. Support for five. Support for a hundred. There is actually someone that supports for a hundred bucks. If you do, there's some rewards there, like a $50 <laughs> supporter, a hundred dollar supporter, if you really want to. Um, I'd be grateful to say I've fulfilled a few of those uh, and you're more than welcome to do it some more if you want. 
If not, that's fine. But yeah, for about the cost of a fancy cup of coffee each month, you can support this show and make sure this show comes to you every week. Uh, Patreon.com slash Oshera Podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And I'm very grateful that because of your support, I'm able to pay Andy, who is the audio producer of this show and make sure this show has been happening all year. Without him, there would be no show. Without you, there would be no Andy. So it's really that simple. Thank you to everybody that sent me a podsy during the week. What the hell is that? you ask. Uh, Podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E, a Podsy, is uh, you taking a photo with the phone that you're listening to this on and then sending it to me. Yeah. So wherever you are right now, whip your phone out and uh, snap a photo of what you're looking at or where you're listening. And just, uh, you can either tag me on Twitter or Instagram, on Snapchat, uh, Osher Ginsberg on Snapchat or Osher Ginsberg on Snapchat, or you can send me an email, send Osher email at gmail.com and just send it to me. It's always interesting. It's always interesting to see where people are listening. It's great to get the international ones. It's great to get the Australian ones. I've uh, got some fantastic ones from up in the Gulf of Carpentaria a few weeks ago. They were great. Um, some good ones in the, in, in the kitchen, people doing chores around the house. I love that. Uh, I, I actually look forward to doing the dishes because I get to get my podcasts on. I enjoy it. I really do now. I hope your week was a good week. I had a good ride this week. I was the slow one, though. No one likes to be the slow one on the slow one on the group ride. I was the slow one. That was, yeah. I'm not as fit as I'd like to be. I, I ran. I rode the Amy Gillett ride a few weeks ago, if you recall, and I did quite, you know, well, more, more well than I thought I'd do. And I thought, yeah, no problem. I'll go out for a 70k hit out. We'll be fine. And I'm schlepping up these hills at the central coast, which is beautiful, by the way. But my goodness, I was going so slow. I thought my heart was going to explode. And I thought, what the hell happened? Why? I was so fast about three weeks ago. Oh, that's right. I sat by the pool for a week in Fiji and just ate taro and cassava lying around in the sun. I read two books and did nothing. That'll do it. It's amazing how quickly that fitness disappears. Also, I do have about 10 kilos on me that I'd rather not have right now. And that does make you go slower. So, uh, yeah. Uh, what else can I tell you? Oh, yeah. If you hear me talking about my meds on this show a lot, it's because if you're on meds, you tend to adjust them a lot because you're just basically trying to find that mix of benefits to side effects. And uh, I've recently gone up on things and things are starting to feel a little better. Um, I did wake up with uh, the kind of pangs of anxiety for the first time in a long time this morning, which was weird, but I, you know, I know what to do. I know that I you know, have to do some mental gymnastics to get around them. But the benefits of having meds is that it allows that reframing and the mental gymnastics stuff to actually work because when the meds aren't there, I can tell myself the world's not ending all I like, but it, my brain doesn't believe it. I can't flip out of that irrational belief into a rational belief. So um, I just did what my doctor told me and I just, you know, um, I was cuddling Audrey at the time, so I just focused on the feeling of her skin underneath the pads of my fingers and, you know, just really concentrate as hard as I can on, on the feeling where her skin touched my skin on my hand on the back of her shoulder and that there was a dog sleeping peacefully at the foot of the bed and, you know, at this point in time with these two things in my life, not all of the world, the entirety of the world was in a bad place and the world wasn't ill ending because right here in this room things were okay and my brain went, oh, okay, and I fell back to sleep. And that's always nice when that happens. doesn't happen all the time. But it was nice because, yeah, when the meds aren't in effect, no matter how hard I try to reframe or, or refocus, I just can't do it. And I stay in that kind of Armageddon head and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty shit house. Uh, got an exciting week ahead. 
um, heading down to Melbourne to record a family feud, which I'm super excited about. I've always wanted to, I love a game show. I've hosted a game show or two in my time and uh, really excited to watch Grant Denyer in his uh, absolute home that he has made for himself in that studio. God, he's good. I'm looking forward to watching him in operation. And so I'm going to go do that. And uh, my brother's going to marry his boyfriend this week. I'm so excited. I was a bit sad that uh, he and his boyfriend couldn't marry here in Australia. It does make me sad when people get all uppity about same-sex marriage in Australia because like you, and I'm sure many of you, I, you know, I have a, a, a brother who I love very much. You've probably got a brother or a sister who you love very much uh, that is in a same-sex relationship. And it, it really it does make me kind of, kind of sad that um, he and his uh, partner couldn't get married here in Australia. But I'm grateful that we have a, a neighbour in New Zealand who is a bit more progressive in the way they think. And, uh, you know, despite the cultural history of that country, which is very similar to ours, they're okay with it. And I'm grateful that we have them in our midst, that they can hopefully influence us here in Australia. But uh, I'm looking forward to that very, very much. But I, I was really hoping that they'd get it across the line in time here in Australia before uh, those boys got married, but they didn't make it happen. So um, thanks, Malcolm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just love, man. It's just two people in love. Let people be in love. It's got nothing to do with my relationship with Audrey. has nothing to do with your relationship or anyone's relationship. So why should my brother's relationship with his boyfriend have anything to do with your relationship or my relationship? It doesn't. Just let love happen, man. It's just let love be love. The world needs more love. And I certainly hope that before the end of the year, at least, or in the near future, that we'll get that one across the line. It did take us a long time to realise that slavery wasn't a good idea. It took us a long time to recognise Aboriginal Australians as humans, 1967. So it might take us a little while for this one. We'll get it, but it just won't be before Christmas. <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be enough time before the boys got married in New Zealand, but it's going to be great. Anyway, I'll tell you more about that next week because I will have... Uh, I'll be on the way to that next week, so I'll have a bit more of a chat about that next week. Let me tell you about my guest today. I'm, st I'm stoked that I can bring you this one. Dr. Jen Rayner, uh, she is a native Canberran. That means she comes from Canberra, which is our nation's capital here in Australia. She's written a remarkable book called Generation Less, How Australia is Cheating the Young. Now, if you're a parent, if you're a young person in Australia, if you're at all interested in the Australian economy and what the future holds for our younger population, this, this is a very interesting chat. This is a very interesting chat. If politics makes you yawn, don't worry. Jen's a brilliant communicator and she puts forward her argument in a very clear and very concise way and you'll, you'll leave this conversation feeling smarter than when you came in. That's a, that's a guarantee. But I look at the world very differently now. I mean, I always try to look at it through the eyes of, of, of what it might be to be a, a young person, but looking at the world now of what, you know, Gigi who uh, is Audrey's daughter, who's now 12, what she looks at and the opportunities available to her as a young person and what is awaiting her in the next 20 years or so, I've suddenly become very interested in, oh, my goodness, what are we leaving for them? And so I tracked down Jen on Twitter and uh, thankfully she agreed to come into the house and have a bit of a podcast and I hope you really enjoy the show. Uh, again, the book is called Generation Less, How Australia is Cheating the Young. Follow her on Twitter at jr underscore rainer let her know you heard her here that's always nice to give my guests a kick that you heard him here but i uh, hope you enjoy this chat 
Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. Do I call you uh, uh, Dr. Rayner or do I uh, call you Jenny or Jen? Uh, Jen. Jen. Yep. Great. What, what kind of doctor? Uh, doctor of politics, actually. Political science. Brilliant. Mm. That's so great. And you've come up from Canberra. For the day, you know, so good cool. to get away from the cold. Did you grow up there? I did. Born and raised Canberran. And so what did your folks do? Uh, public servant yeah, and tradie. Because Canberra's pretty much like the... Yeah, it's a bit of a company town. Yeah. yeah. You don't... You're very you're rare in that you grew up there. That's right. There's not that many of People either get born and, and flee. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say leave because that's not the right <laughs> word. No, nope. and I have done that. I have fled on a couple of occasions, but I keep finding my way back there. So when you went to school, was it everybody's parents were in the business? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Particularly because I went to kind of a Catholic or girls school. So sort of, you know, that um, middle class thing, all the public servant parents, they yeah. write very good letters to the principal. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> Would that, I mean, even just here, Gigi's uh, uh, primary school, just down the road, there was a couple of uh, letters to the principal that were, you know, both parents are lawyers and, yeah. and, and, and our little Johnny is, is, is above all of this stuff, that this, this discipline that the teacher's imposing upon him. It's like, well, even you, the principal. It's like, when you start to see your key, there's more important than the principal. <laughs> it does kind of defeat the purpose of the... Of the education system. Yep, yeah. You'd think so. Because I went to, where I went to school in Brisbane, in high school at least, um, we were across the road from the Queensland Liberal Party headquarters mm-hmm. and there was... Just the bags of money going in and out? Well, or? there was two kids... <laughs> Uh, from school that would go over there after school mm. to go and hang with dad or, uh. or would go to the, the meetings and stuff. But I'm, I've got to say that going to school like yours, everyone's <laughs> parents must have been in. Yeah, there's really the only two businesses in Canberra. There's politics and there's the public service and that's, um, that's what you grow up with. <laughs> right. So who's the tradie, your father? My dad, yep. Yeah, what kind of tradie? He's a plumber, so proper blue collar. So right. I can claim to have some kind of working class roots. <laughs> so, but, you know, would he come home and go, you'll never believe whose toilet I sunk today? <laughs> well, he was actually a small businessman slash plumber, so he wasn't, wasn't kind of your average getting his hands all that dirty kind of plumber. Plumbers are, I'm telling you, that's the secret industry right there. Just that's, tradies in general. Tradies, uh, that's, that's the industry that I would be encouraging my son to go into, to be honest. So I'm like, don't bother with this university business. Go get a trade because you will be minted for life. The barrier to entry for this what I'm doing right now, mm. we could do this podcast on a phone, all right? Not even that one. Like mm-hmm. a crappy iPhone 4 could publish this podcast. Yep. But if you want to become a plumber, you've really, that's an investment of training and, and gear. and Absolutely. And but, you know, you'll never be short of work. Never. never. ever. Water will always need to flow from <laughs> uphill to down. And, and people will always want their toilets unblocked. True. We're in the wrong game, Jen. We're in the wrong game. At what point did you, I mean, political science is most definitely a, you kind of know that that's what you want to get into. When did you first start getting fascinated with how it works? I think I've always been really fascinated by politics. Uh, Maybe that's just growing up in the company town, but also just um, thinking a lot about how stuff gets done in a community. And the more that you look at how things happen, the more you realise that politics sort of sits at the centre of that and the people who have the ability to make the systems work are the ones who can actually get stuff done. Because, I mean, again, growing up, all I know is what I grew up with. I was so... I grew up on the Bjelke-Peterson in Queensland, <laughs> um, which is as close to uh, police state as you can probably get <laughs> in modern Australia. Western Australia was pretty good for a while there. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, as far as, like, um, shipping in, uh, bussing in cops from Roma to, mm. to, to physically beat protesters uh, against the government and then sh- shipping them back out again so no one could protest. Like, it was, it was really dark. 
Um, I felt completely as a kid, not only like I wasn't interested, but I was also like nothing I can do will change anything. Mm. But clearly you had a different outlook. Yeah, and I think possibly that is something that you get from growing up in a place where everybody is um, very political and really one way or another involved in the in the system of government, whether it is the public service or it's parliament or local government, because we also have, for, uh, for the size of our population, a very big state government. Um, you do actually see that these are processes that people, everyday people, are involved in and that, you know, if you chuck your oar in as well, then you can sort of make a difference. What was the first time you remember... Uh, chucking your oar in? The very first thing that politically that I remember ever doing actually was the Republic referendum in 1999 and I was obviously not old enough to actually vote in that referendum. I think I was about how old would I have been? Maybe 13, 12 or 13 years old. Um, but my sister and I got a boombox and we sat outside the polling booth on uh, referendum day blaring Chumbawamba's goodbye to the Crown. Uh, just on the, so that as people were on their way in, we were just encouraging them, you know, exhorting them in our own little way to vote for the Republic. Older and, sister? And older sister, yeah. And we were very disappointed that it didn't get up. So older sister, <laughs> so did she have any influence upon you politically? No, I was always dragging her along, actually, sadly. Right. Yeah. So where was it that, that you, I mean, to go to be anti-Republic at the time, I mean, a lot of people have forgotten that we even did that, that, you know, that we even had that referendum come up. Um, I remember at the time being... That was the first thing I voted in after I became an Australian citizen, actually, yeah, right. was, was that. And I remember at the time just going, and, you know, to say it now is weird, but I, I voted against it at the time because mm. I wasn't, like, what, they were, what I was voting for I was not okay with mm -hmm. at the time. Now... I would have voted it in and we would have fixed it after we got it up. Yeah. And I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a really interesting, uh, that referendum is still a really interesting example of how you can use the system to get to an outcome because the government of the day changed the way that the question was framed or changed the question that people were voting on to get to the outcome that they wanted. Whereas if it had been sort of more of a straightforward yes, no kind of question, like you say, I think a lot of people would have said, right, yep, let's have this and let's just get it out of the way. So that's a, like a, actually a nice example of how political processes can be used to influence the outcome. So after, so what point, to, to vote, to be thinking, oh, I don't want a republic, and if you're 13. Oh, I was I mean, I'm sorry, I, sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. to, to say, I don't want a monarchy, <laughs> yeah. and you're 13, something must have informed that. I don't know. I was always a big reader, I think. Not, not really a sports person, me. Uh, was more, and this is what I say, you know, always influencing my older sister. She was the one trying to get me to come out onto the soccer field, and I was the one saying, just let me finish this chapter. So I think um, as a kid, if you read a lot, you just get really curious because you read one thing and it leads on to the next thing and then that leads on to the next thing from there. And then I think I was really fortunate as well to have, you know, parents and people around me who um, were keen to feed that conversation rather than stomp on it. So at dinner, your, your mum, what kind of questions would they ask over dinner? Yeah, I always remember us having pretty involved conversations because um, both of my parents are sort of... Um, you know, not from not very well-off backgrounds and not, I wouldn't say they're highly political, but they certainly care about uh, issues of the day and, um, you know, better lives for working and middle-class people is kind of a consistent theme throughout their lives. Um, and so I can always just sort of remember if I asked a question, then they would, you know, answer it and follow it as far as it went rather than just being like, oh, why do you want to know that? There's something I'm really conscious of with my own son is trying to um, follow his curiosity where it leads him. Yeah. I mean, we... We try, uh, so Gigi, who's 12, who I live with, mm. uh, she's Audrey's daughter, Gigi insists that we sit down at dinner and we eat at least at least once a week. Yep. And uh, we, we go around the table and we talk about um, what we can do better 
in the, in the household uh-huh. and, and, and what, what you're doing that I like about what's mm-hmm. happening this week and what you could maybe work on this mm-hmm. week, which is really awesome. I read this story once about um, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes, which probably indicates what a weird marriage they had, but apparently they would get into bed at the end of every night and sit there and turn to each other and go, what did we do well today, honey, and what do we need to work on today, honey? And they would end every day with a little, just a little debrief and review of the day. It's not so bad. <laughs> I always just thought that would lead to arguments right before bedtime. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, maybe maybe not quite before bedtime. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe not. But I get, you know, the kind of analytical, mm. uh, you know, way of thinking about his workflow has clearly got him to where he is. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, you don't get to be Tom Cruise by accident. No, I guess not. Um, Although they are divorced now, so maybe it didn't work out that well for yeah, them. Yeah, <laughs> but his career, I mean, you look at his career, he's below average height. He wasn't the best looking dude around at the time. It's true. He just had a thing. Yep. He's a really hard worker by all accounts as yeah, well, and, and I think that counts for a lot. Yeah, I have I have had the chance to meet him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's he like? To say laser focused would be to <laughs> understate yeah, what you right. have when you look him in the eye. Yeah, right. Yeah. He has that. You hear great politicians have it, mm. the ability to make the rest of the room go quiet mm. and you to feel that you are the most important person in the world for those 20 oh, seconds. People who have that skill are always going to do well in life, aren't they? Yeah, I hear. Um, I've met a few musicians that have it, mm. but um, he's got it. Apparently, um, my uh, for people at home I know that have had conversations with him, Bill Clinton is the master mm. of all masters. Mm. That's what everybody says about him. He shakes your hand and then just the rest of the world doesn't exist. Disappears. Yeah. And, yeah, he asks, he just has the, that thing, mm. which I guess, you know, that's how you become president. I guess so. And and climb that climb that ladder. When did you, uh, so you, you went through high school and at what point, because I'm always interested, at what point did university become a thing that, yeah, I've got to go do it? Yeah, it's funny. I guess, again, um, Canberra is about, is about 40% of people in Canberra have a tertiary education compared to, I think, it's about 14% nationally. So Canberra is a very, it's white collar in just about every aspect that you could possibly think of. Um, and it never really occurred to me that I wouldn't go to university. And so it was just a question of what you would do. Um, but it's interesting, my younger brother didn't go to university and he actually dropped out of school before finishing it and has gone on to do a trade himself. And I'm really conscious of how much of a difference going to university makes to where you end up in life and the type of people you hang out with and the opportunities that you have available to you and how doing a trade and going down that vocational path really takes you down a completely different route. And it's one of the things that first got me thinking about the book, Generation Less, was about the different kind of outcomes that people have depending on where they start in life. So, so for example, to use your family's uh, situation, so what kind of people that you met through university was different to the kind of people that your brother met. Yeah, well, I mean, politics is an interesting example of that. So um, when I was at university, met a bunch of people who were also interested in politics and you sort of go on from there, uh, you get involved in a political party and then you meet other politicians and, you know, it sort of follows a path from there. Um, Whereas my brother, I think, by virtue of knowing me, is probably the most politicised person he knows and he would say that he's not politicised at all. Uh, He works with people who, you know, wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you which the leaders of which of the two major parties were because it's just not important to their lives. It's not the sort of thing that they're interested in. Uh, And they have a huge range of other, you know, really important things that they focus on, but they're just completely different realms. And um, I think it's not all about education, obviously. It's about what you choose to spend your time on and and that sort of thing. But it's just about how each step that you take takes you off in in a different direction in your life. And I've always found that really interesting. What do you study when you do political science? 
All sorts of things, actually. A fair bit of economics because a lot of um, political science is about, you know, the division of resources, so who gets what and where and why, and economics is really important to that because money makes the world go round, as we know. Um, a lot of institutional stuff as well, so how the structures that we have in our society, so whether they're the courts or the parliament or... Uh, the executive, how those processes actually work together. Uh, and then a lot of history as well, because to understand politics is really important to understand what's come before and possibly a criticism that people have of politics and politicians at the moment is that we don't learn enough from the past to, to make decisions about going forward. What, uh, what role does the psychology of the masses, I guess, play mm. in, in learning what you learn when you do that degree? That's actually, we didn't do a lot of that sort of stuff, but probably certainly in politics it's useful to uh, to have and to think a lot about what motivates people and what drives them. Um, certainly when you work in politics, you start to understand how actually there are a couple of really core things that drive absolutely everybody, which is, you know, wanting a secure life, a good future, things to look forward to, you know, enough resources to take care of themselves and their families, and you can dress up other things people want in a bunch of different ways, but fundamentally that's really what people want and need. And if as a government or as a politician or as, you know, uh, whoever else in the, in the community, if you're meeting those needs for people, then you, you're doing pretty well. Well, speaking of, of the community, I often, I often wonder about this. You know, those kids that I went to high school with, those kids I went to high school with, um, you know, they went pretty much from high school to do a degree, probably not unlike yours or a law degree. They went from there to becoming junior staffers on uh, party desks somewhere in the country, usually probably at regional, much like radio, I'm sure. You get mm. sent to the country first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then ended up in Canberra, one of them's in Canberra. And, you know, I can only imagine that the people that grow to become leaders of these parties did exactly the same thing. Now, the thing that I always wonder is about is how can someone who's lived that life, whose parent was in the party, and has grown their whole life within that system and never not known how to get what they need done because they know someone mm. or dads know someone or mm. someone in the party knows someone, how can that person possibly understand what it is to be, let's face it, a woman, uh, a minority, someone who's recently come to this country, someone who speaks English as a second language? And mm. you've worked in these halls. Is there any way at all that these people are going to go out of their way to figure out what life's like for people who aren't them? I think one of the really great strengths of the political processes that we have in Australia is that they are still fundamentally based on a lot of direct human contact. So you can be a candidate for a seat, but you're not going to get elected unless you actually spend a huge amount of time out in your community, talking to people um, individually, actually telling them what you're about, knocking on doors, making phone calls, all that kind of thing. And so... It's really hard to do that and not come away with some sense and some feeling of, of what it is that people's concerns are. And even working your way up through the process, I suppose, um, relies a lot on direct human contact, basically. So I think even people who don't necessarily come from underprivileged backgrounds, as you say, or people who aren't from migrant communities and things like that, the amount of um, direct contact that our political system is still based on means that people can be in touch with what's going on. But I would say as well, it's absolutely important that we have people from all backgrounds, you know, moving through the system. And something that I think um, the Labor Party does, and I'll declare my hand here as a, as a Labor Party person, something the Labor Party does a lot better than other parties is actually m go out of our way to find opportunities for women in particular over the last um, probably 30 years with quotas and things like that. Um, and then now at the moment, obviously more of a push to get people from a broader range of backgrounds and particularly, you know, migrant backgrounds and that sort of thing, because it is really important to have that diversity of views. At what point do you, because I 
someone in my family was being courted by both Liberal and Labor mm-hmm. uh, to come and join them. Mm-hmm. Um, what at what point do you do you feel so compelled? Like I have I have to now join this party rather than just be a regular voter. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, actually joined a lot later than a lot of people do. A lot of people do that kind of university politics, as you say, move through the system sort of thing. Um, I didn't join until later in life because I had sort of been around the traps a while and had done various different jobs and worked outside of politics most of my career, actually. Um, And then just sort of thought, you know what, as a slightly older person now, you know, in my late 20s, I kind of really know where I sit and I know what I stand for and the party or the organisation that shares my values is that party. I think as a slightly older person as well, it's easier to make those choices. You know, people who join when they're a lot younger maybe do it because their family does or because they had mates at uni or a girl they were trying to see in the in the party at uni is a really common way I've heard from a lot of my friends is why they joined. Um, but as you get a bit older and you realise where your value system sits, then it's it's not a hard choice to make. What's it like when you, but then you went on to work in, in the, um, sorry, this dog, uh, <laughs> Frank, just keeping us safe from people in the hallway. Yep. Uh, you went on to work actually in Canberra. Uh, which um, ministry were you working in? Um, so I've been fortunate to represent um, or work with representatives from the ACT. Um, Dr Andrew Lee, who is an amazing federal member, um, represents the seat of was Fraser, now Fenner, uh, and was really fortunate to have the opportunity to work with him because he is probably Australia's leading academic of inequality. And inequality is probably fundamentally one of the most important issues of this decade at least, probably of this era, and to work with someone who was able to combine the insights of academia and of, you know, 10 years of academic research with an understanding of the political system and how we can progress issues of inequality mm. by bringing those two things together was a real privilege. When when you do get into this, because uh, again, this seems like a place that I'll never get to go, a place I'll never get to work, a place I'll never get to have any influence on. Mm. Does it sound, does it feel like a, you know, like a, a cloistered system that, because you know, we do get this idea that we can only influence it once every couple of years with a vote. Um, and I certainly feel that now, you know, when, like, what did I see the other day? That weightlifter doing his dance from Kiribati. And I thought, <laughs> shit, I've got to get in touch with Malcolm and go, dude, what are we going to do to help these people? Because mm-hmm. they're going to come here mm. when they don't have any country left. What are we, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, you know... I've never really one to who has been bothered to contact my MP because I always feel it's not going to make any difference. Mm. I think um, I talk in the book about how young people just really feel like the political system either doesn't respond to them or they actually don't really know how to Mm. get in touch with people and to get involved in the system and and make it work for them. Uh, But one of the things that you discover very quickly when you go to work in politics is that there's stuff going on all the time that people have this opportunity to chip into. Um, So in particular in the parliament there are inquiries all the time going on and there are public hearings and there are opportunities for people to make submissions that then, you know, get fed into various other processes. And I make the point in the book that big businesses get involved in every one of those and lobbying firms get involved in every one of those and, you know, some academics get involved in every one of those and they do that because they actually know that those things work and that they do make a difference. And so I always find it really funny when... um, you know, younger friends of mine or people when I was teaching at university, my students would say, oh, there's no point making a submission to a Senate inquiry. Like, who's going to pay attention to that? I say, well, the Business Council of Australia made a submission. Why do you think the Business Council of Australia did that? Because they know it makes a difference. Right. But again, I would have no idea how to make a submission. I would have no idea how to do it. Is the process simple enough that a punter like me can can do it? Um, 
if you, yeah, I think that's a really good point. If you know where to look, it's not that hard. But um, if you're someone who's never really been that engaged, probably never even been on, say, the Parliament House website, for example, you wouldn't know where to look and, and that sort of thing, which is why one of the quite practical um, solutions that I talk about in the book is just having better civics education at schools. So um, I would really like it if when my son goes to school, he has a class where they talk about, you know, what is what is the Senate inquiry process? And if I wanted to make a submission, how would I go about it? Yeah. If I wanted to get a public campaign rolling, what would it look like beyond a Facebook petition? Mm. I actually think those are really core skills that young people could be gaining. And there's not, I mean, in some schools, they do encourage that. They tend to be the, you know, better, higher end, you know, more expensive schools. And I just think those are kind of core skills that young people could really benefit from yeah, having. Yeah, I, I had no idea mm. about it at all. <laughs> None whatsoever. I think we went to Queensland Parliament at the time, but again, um, Bjelke Peterson was in power and mm. all I knew that my parents would just say, I can't believe this right-wing fascists are in power. This is crazy. Because, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, they were on TV beating people who were protesting the South African uh, mm. rugby team coming to play, mm. who had to play behind barbed wire. I'll never forget. I saw mm. it on the, on the telly when I was a, when no, I was a kid. No, it's a really unusual time in Australian political history, that whole era. Yeah. And really not one that anybody would want to see repeated. Well, some great music came out of it. All that, <laughs> all that really great Brisbane yeah. music. And that's the unfortunate thing is great music comes under right-wing governments. <laughs> it always has. It always has. When you put people under pressure, they create great art. They I suppose do. That, that's true. They do, but... What is, you know, art, art's not going to, you know, help you have more money in your paycheck. Um, well, uh, you're here because I, I've heard about your book and I really wanted you to come on because I'm, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by it. I have uh, Gigi in my life. She's 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's eight years away from entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. I every day think about, you know, what op- opportunities she's going to have. Uh, you know, I'm one of four boys. So mm-hmm. the world looked very, very different to me mm-hmm. as I left school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look, at, I look at her and I think, well, not only as a woman, what is she going to be able to expect from the world? But then, you know, when I, even when I was uh, uh, leaving high school, at the time Queensland had record high youth unemployment. I mm-hmm. think it was something like 20-something percent. I couldn't, I couldn't buy a job mm. if, if I wanted. Um, and, you know, this idea that, oh, you just get a job and you just work and you just get in the company and you're set, that was just starting to go. This is like early 90s. Mm. But that gone. Mm. Now, uh, you've you written, written the book Generation Less. Um, a lot of – did you write it more for the people who are um, Gigi's age and above or more from just older than me and, and, and older to mm. kind of understand what their kids are going through or more people to understand this is the world you've got, here's how to deal with it? I think it was a couple of things. So I'm quite fortunate in that I have been exposed to people – in, in all of those different categories. And so my former husband is about 10 years older than me, so he was leaving school and looking for work during that early 90s recession, which would have been the same time as you, talking about, you know, trying to get into a workforce at a time when businesses were just shedding workers left, right and centre. There was just for young people, it was a really particularly difficult time. And then, so me being about 10 years younger and, you know, um, coming of age in the middle of the mining boom when things were, they were going pretty well. Everybody gets a big screen TV. Well, that was the thing. It, it, things were going very well across yeah. the economy, but it was still really hard for yeah. young people. It was still really hard for younger people to to find work and then to get the progression through the workforce that we were looking for. And that's one of the areas where I really started thinking about it was putting his experiences and mine side by side and saying, okay, but there was a huge recession on when you were having all of those problems. Today, our economy is supposedly going really well, but young people are still struggling with those same problems that you faced back then. Something's not right because things should be better now if the economy has you know, recovered and is in a better state. And then also I would say um, being a parent now and having a five-year-old, 
I look at what he's got ahead of him and I really worry about that and I worry about where the trends that are affecting my generation now, if they're completely left unchecked, what that means for people like him. My eldest brother works uh, in the executive at um, uh, one of the big universities up in, in Queensland mm. and... You know, I remember when I worked at Channel V, we'd always get this email at the start of every year going, just by the way, people who are turning 18 this year, you know, this is the era they were born and we'd all start. I was 27. I think, wow, I'm really old. And now I'm 42. <laughs> um, so even more so. But he uses, uh, you know, mine and my other brothers who were just just an idea of like this gap and I'm, it might illustrate it. One of my other brothers works in the automotive industry. He was this massive car show and he um, was sitting with the journalists and he said there was all these guys who were in their mid-50s taking notes with uh, a pen and paper, shorthand. (laughs) And then there were these kids, 20, 22, with iPhones, Mm. but no one in between. Mm. And uh, my eldest brother used the word, he goes, ah, that's stop and prop. That's that's these journos who just like will not ever get out of the way. And is is that one of the problems facing facing the workforce today and facing young people trying to get in? Yeah, so I mean the workforce is actually a real cluster for young people at the moment in a range of different ways. Did you mean to say clusterfuck? Well, I wasn't going to say that on the radio, but sure. If you want to say that on your (laughs) podcast, it's totally up to you. There's a swear joke. Gigi wasn't supposed to be home from school today. It's all right. When my guests swear, I get to pay in the swear joke. Excellent. Okay. Uh, I'll remember that for later. (laughs) Um, So really, I mean, young people are facing a couple of different problems. One is, to begin with, it's quite hard to get in and to find a job that is secure enough to start with. Um, When my parents were leaving school in kind of 1978 and looking for work, there were all of these jobs which were entry level and didn't require a lot of skill but were pretty secure and paid reasonably well. So for blokes it was on a factory line or in an abattoir or something like that. For women it was doing, you know, clerical secretariat work. And you could get those jobs and you could get into the organisation and you could work your way up and be paid while you were doing it. There, and was, get, there was training as there you was, That's right, and there was yeah. training. So on the manufacturing line you might start off just welding one socket every day but then you would gradually, you know, learn how to put other parts of the car together and then you might rise to be a, a line supervisor and then eventually a manager and you could sort of see how your career would map out. Those jobs are gone. They, they have just disappeared from the economy because of things like automation and offshoring and that sort of thing. And so now young people are trying to find work and where they can find it is in these much less secure kind of casual jobs. So hospitality, retail, nannying, nail bars, those kind of jobs. And part of the problem with that is, A, that they're not very well paid because they are low skill and so pretty much anyone can do them and therefore there's no um, no really need for those workers to be well paid. Uh, but then also it's hard to get enough work because they are so casual. And so back when my parents were looking for work, about one in 30 young people said they were underemployed. Today the number's one in six. So one in six young people actually can't get enough hours to put together, you know, a, a decent living. Um, and, and this is not even... We're, t- we're just talking... Roof over your head, food in the fridge, internet, maybe seeing your friends once a week. We're that's not even right. talking savings or super. No, and that, that's absolutely right. And so then one of the reasons that uh, it's getting particularly difficult for young people as well then is that the wages that they have are just not keeping pace with the cost of other things rising. Um, so wages have grown by about $220. Uh, sorry, go back to remember the numbers. I think it's uh, wages have grown by $600 uh, a week for people who are in their late 50s between the 90s and today, but they've only grown by about $200 for younger people. So older people's wages have taken off like a rocket. Younger people's wages are pretty much standing still. But as we know, the price of things like housing, uh, even you know, um, transport, accommodation, all of those things is, is skyrocketing as well. 
what that then creates uh, is a situation where young people are sort of starting out not very well off and then as they look to progress through life they're not able to do the things which we sort of took for granted in previous generations like save a deposit for a house get promoted uh in particular i talk in the book about this idea of the gray ceiling which is what your brother has observed there that there's all these people who got into good jobs in their 40s and 50s but they're going to stay in the workforce for another 20 years and why would they go anywhere they're great jobs they're very happy with those jobs uh and we want older people to stay in the workforce because you know if they're healthy and, and well and contributing, then of course they should do that. But there's not been enough attention paid to what happens to all of the young people that are in the pipeline then and kind of can't go anywhere because there's no opportunities for them to progress too. It's not hard to look around to see this. You know, it's not like mm. we're talking about something that is, isn't re- represented in any... Everyone knows someone who's got a either a friend or someone's son who's like 28 and living at home. Mm. All right? And everyone's made a joke about it. Mm. Or every, everyone knows someone who, oh, I remember them, they were great. But then they moved to, you know, Emu Plains or something, <laughs> you know, which is a, a suburb really like it's on the bottom of the Blue Mountains. Yep. It's about an hour and 15 minutes when there's no traffic mm. out of Sydney. And then the jobs they have are in Sydney. And it's, it's very, very tough. It's not like, you know, when you... I mean, I've got friends that have parents that live in the inner west of, of Sydney, which is now, you know, Boomtown. Mm. But they bought it when they were 24 out of high school with two kids, mm. you know, on these jobs that you were talking about. And those opportunities just just aren't there. No, that's right. And I mean, one of the things that sort of compelled me to write the book is that I kept having these conversations exactly of the type that you've described there of someone saying, oh man, you know, I'm just, I'm about to turn 25 and I still can't get anything except bar work. Or, you know, I would really love to be able to put a housing deposit together, but every time I nearly get there, the price of housing takes off again. And I just, you know, my deposit just is ne- never seems to be enough. Or as you say, you know, a friend who you haven't seen for months because they had to move so far out of town or to an- another place entirely to try and get a job. And I actually realised that I'd been having those conversations with people my age for, you know, five or six years now and more and more of them adding up. And it just really occurred to me that this is not something that's unique to, you know, my particular set of friends. Actually, this is a problem that's happening right across the Australian community. What happens in other countries when, I mean, we do have the inequality already, but it's set to get way, way, way worse. Hmm. What happens in other countries when they let that inequality kind of get out of control? Well, I think what we're seeing in America at the moment is a really interesting example of that. And I think, you know, it's hard not to look at America and American politics and and be kind of worried about where things like the Donald Trump phenomenon are leading to. But when you have inequality and you have people who... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
don't feel like they have a stake in the community and you have people who see a group of people really getting ahead and feel like it's never going to happen to them, there's an, an anger and a frustration that grows from that which is really damaging to our social fabric. And I think we've been fortunate in Australia for a range of both historic and kind of public policy reasons that some of the trends that I talk about in the book haven't taken off as strongly as they have overseas. So in Europe at the moment, for example, post the global financial crisis, the employment situation for young people is genuinely horrendous. We're talking sort of 20, 30% youth unemployment in some countries. So in Australia, by comparison, you know, our 13% rate is bad, uh, particularly compared to the adult rate, but it's not on that same scale. Um, But one of the things that I was keen to do with the book was to say, look where we're heading, because if we don't change direction now, if we don't address some of the problems which are creating these gaps, then they're just going to keep getting bigger. And they've widened out really significantly just across my lifetime. I don't want to get to the point where my son is, you know, 25 years time, he sits down to write a book and he's talking about how great we had it today. (laughs) Right. So what's interesting is that you're not really talking about, you're talking less about people won't have access to things like, I mean, they already don't, but things like um, more education opportunities, better health care, uh, opportunities to save so that they are then not a burden on the rest of us come retirement. You're talking about anger that's angry enough to actually really disrupt the society that we know it. Mm, I think that, yeah, I mean, you talk to, there's sort of two groups of young people that you talk to today. One group of young people have just checked out. They've just gone, it's too hard, everything's fucked, you know, I don't know how to fix it and I'm checking out of it as a result. And then you've got a group of people, and I'd probably include myself more in this, who are pissed off and but who still see that there are opportunities to change where we're going. And I think that sense of hopelessness is part of the problem in somewhere like America. So you've got anger and then you combine it with hopelessness Mm. and people feel like they've got nothing to lose. And it's really easy to exploit. Yeah. That's when it's really easy to get that othering in there. The reason you feel this way is because those guys over there. That's right. Has nothing to do with the truth. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Because it's the reason you feel this way. Is the reason that people feel this way because people have made, I mean, our country was uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our country was quite lucky in that the people that came before 2008 um, made some very smart moves as far as getting our economy in a robust enough situation to get us through the GFC. Because I, would, I was living overseas at the time. Mm. People here had no idea yeah. that the rest of the world was just like, shop's closed. Um, so they did some things right. Mm. But is, it the, is the reason that we're in this situation now because people have failed to see forward in the last 10, 15, 20 years? I think really what's happened is that things were so good for so long that people have assumed they will continue to be good forever. So Australia's um, GDP per capita, which is, you know, how much of our national income each of us has as a share, has just about doubled over the course of my lifetime. Australia has become incredibly rich and in previous generations that wealth was pretty evenly distributed across the community because we have always had both a strong social safety net and then just generally a a more egalitarian distribution um, of wealth and of resources in this country. And when we took our eye off policies and structures that supported that, the natural tendency of uh, of these things is for them to start accruing into a smaller and smaller share of hands. And I think probably what we haven't done over the last 10, 15 years in particular is think about how younger people are being affected by policy planning that we're doing for the older generation. So everybody's very, very concerned that we're going to have, you know, all these older people who are going to live much longer than they ever have. There's a lot more of them in the community because we had that baby boom group moving through. And so we've spent a lot of time planning for 
what do we do about all these old people? How do we pay for their health care? How do we make sure that, you know, um, we encourage them to save for their retirement so, as you say, they're not reliant on the system? But what we've done in doing that is that we've set up, for example, tax policies which really favour older people and really disadvantage younger people and negative gearing um, capital gains tax is an example of that because it really encourages um, people to invest in property so that they have wealth behind them, but that investment means that younger people can't get into the market. And similarly, you know, we're looking at healthcare and how we pay for that for older people, we're taking the money for that out of the university budget, which means that it's really young people that are paying the price. And this is a, a word that get you love to hear it. People love to say it, I should say. People love to say intergenerational theft. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so scary. <laughs> I mean, I talk more in the book about intergenerational inequality. Mm. So I think we need to design policies and, and look at the way stuff is divided up in the economy to say, okay, what's fair? And what's fair is not necessarily everybody having the same stuff. What I see as intergenerational equity is people having the same opportunities to build stable and secure lives. And there's really just a couple of building blocks for that. It's having a good job. It's being able to grow some wealth. And in Australia and a lot of other countries, that's often owning a home so that you can start uh, building wealth throughout your lifetime. Uh, it's being able to get either an education or a trade or something that supports you to have uh, work throughout your life. And it's being part of a community that supports you through, you know, the, the various vicissitudes of life. And younger Australians are losing the opportunity to have all of those things. And then as a result of that, you know, we have less actual wealth and less actual opportunity. Um, but I think the focus needs to be on how we go back to getting young people the same opportunities to build those stable and secure lives. If, if there's one thing I have noticed a bit, and I do... I work on radio now in, in Brisbane and people get, if I ever stand on, even just put one foot on a soapbox and start talking <laughs> at all about any kind of, um, uh, you know, human rights for refugees or, or, for example, climate change or energy policy, people are like, oh, just shut up, it's so boring. <laughs> I, I remember as a kid people, like, I grew up, um, like I said, I'm older than you, so I grew up uh, um, with you know, worldwide um, attention being on French nuclear testing in the Pacific, on mm. the Franklin River Dam project down in, and, and environmentalism um, being a huge deal mm. and people really, really, and like front page all the time. It seems now that if you're like 20, 22, you're like, I'm busy playing Pokemon Go. I'm like, <laughs> and this is a thing. People bash millennials and white Generation Y quite mm. a bit, uh, but... It's hard to ignore that there is this sense of apathy. Is that because people are just given up because they just feel they can't make a difference? I don't think that's fair, actually. I think um, one of the reasons that there's been this real decline in um, university campus activism, for example, so everybody knows in the 60s and 70s, you know, when my parents were at uni, universities were this absolute hotbed of political activism and there would be protests and there would be, you know, people chaining themselves to things and it was like a real hotspot for activism. And you go onto a university campus these days and, you know, it's pretty quiet. There might be some people, you know, reading under the trees, but there's not, you just don't see that kind of activism going on. Um, that's because the students aren't at university. They're working a full-time job to try and pay for their cost of living while they're at university. <laughs> What's actually happened, I think, is that young people are under so much pressure everywhere else. We're under so much pressure to try and work two jobs in order to put together a living because one won't do it anymore. We are commuting because we live so far away from, you know, where we work or where we study. Uh, we are trying to 
um, find a way to be part of our communities through, you know, local activism and that sort of thing. So this idea that young people are apathetic, I think, is slightly unfair because we just actually don't have the leisure that people in previous generations had to really get involved in right. that sort of stuff. Well, that's, that's I'm glad you told me because, like, when I had uh, the fortune to have Peter Garrett on this on mm. the show, and he talked a bit about um, when Midnight Oil were coming up, a large part of getting the word out about the band is mm. they would fly her at demos. <laughs> And it's like, oh, cool, man, I'll see you at the demo. And because there was a demonstration every week yep. and there were thousands of people in the streets, there was, that was their audience. They yep. just hand flyers out. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, this was the flyer that I picked up at the show and, you know, this audience kind of moved with them. Yep. Um, but you just don't, don't really see that. And I guess, you know, I'm only, again, I've only lived my life and I'm only kind of wondering, like, what are the things that would have stopped me from protesting? What are the things that would have stopped me? And, and you're right. And when you say, like, yeah, if I had to be catching a train to go work at my barista job to make half of my train fare. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't, it doesn't stack up. I think the other thing as well, though, is that the ways that people choose to be politically active or to not just politically active but to engage with issues they care about, it's not actually necessarily the most effective thing now to be out on the street holding a placard. You know, mm. you can be organising a letter-writing campaign online or you can be lobbying people, you know, through social media or it, there are a lot more ways to be politically active these days and I think young people, uh, certainly the research suggests that they choose those online and digital sort of forms of activism more than they would choose the traditional form. But, but that's I'm, partly because you can fit that in around your two jobs and your long daily commute. <laughs> but you have, you have with, with those things in mind, with the two jobs and long, long daily commute, you have spoken about that the spark has faded in some mm. of these people. Why mm. do you think that is? Ah, oh, because it wears you down, I think. Um, and, you know, I was reflecting a little earlier about the difference between, um, you know, my brother and I, him being in a trade and me being in a, in a white-collar job. And I think there's something in that as well about, you know, kind of life wearing you down. If you work eight hours a day in a trade and then you knock that job off and you go and drive an Uber car at night to um, make ends meet, when do you have the energy to, or the the will, I guess, to then really think about what change you want and then go out and make it. Um, whereas I'm very, I acknowledge that I've always been very fortunate to kind of be, you know, white collar professional jobs, which don't give you the deep sense of physical exhaustion apart from anything else. And so you, you kind of do have the time to think, all right, well, how do I want to make Australia better? And, but who's to say that, you know, your version of Australia being better is, is what everybody wants? Like, well, know? that's exactly right. That's why in the book I actually am pretty harsh on my own generation in saying it doesn't actually matter what kind of change you want to get made, take some responsibility for making it because nobody else is going to, to be honest. Uh, we sometimes, I think, as a, as a generation, we do tend to look to our parents or to others to sort of um, try and make that change on our behalf and we say, oh, it's not fair. Why aren't the politicians listening to us? Why aren't our local government listening to us? Um, and we actually need to take that responsibility ourselves and something that I issue quite a call to arms at the end of the book about. Well, so we've, we've talked a little bit about what might happen if we don't do anything and there's no, there's no question that it is a problem in our society and I... I Part of me is like, I lived, like I said, I lived overseas for a long time. I've only been back about nine months. And what we have in this country is it really is better than pretty much everywhere else on the planet. Mm. What, what we have, um, the potential of what we can do, though, is just it's not the top of the mountain what we have. There's mm. nothing but blue sky ahead of us. If we wanted to, mm. we could, like in words of Will Anderson, we could be the catter of clean energy if we wanted. <laughs> we, could, we could have more, you know, more clean, free energy for everyone if, than tomorrow if someone was to tick a box somewhere. 
Um, but, you know, this idea that as a, you know, you're talking to a generation of, of people who not only are they too busy to, to try and make things better, they also maybe don't know how to make things better. What are some things that people can do? What are some ways that could make turn this up? So, you know, in in 20 years, your kids will be 20, your kid will be 25. You know, what kind of world will he be growing into, I guess? What sure. are some things we can do? Well, look, I mean, the meta issue, the, the one thing that people can do is just get involved somehow and find whatever small lever by which they can make their voices heard and then use that. I think in terms of addressing the systemic issues that I talk about in the book and really those are how we get young people into quality work and keep them there throughout their careers, how we allow young people to build wealth over their lifetimes and how we support them to have meaningful you know, engagement with their communities and with each other. There are some really practical things that we should be doing about that in a public policy sense but none of those things will happen unless more young people are getting involved in the processes. So just to run through what a couple of those solutions I think probably are, um, we talk a lot about channeling young people into university and, you know, if you get a university degree, by and large, you will do quite well, although it is breaking down now. Maybe sometimes you need two degrees rather than one to get the job that you used to need one degree for. Um, that's sort of a separate issue. But there's about 60% of young people who don't go to university in Australia at the moment and we don't do anywhere near enough to make sure that they get good skills for good jobs. Um, so whether it's an apprenticeship, whether it's a trade certificate, whether it's going to TAFE, we need to think more about how those young people can get the skills they need and then maintain those skills to stay in work over their lifetimes. Um, we also, I think, personally, um, should have more of a focus on young people starting their own businesses because when you have this pipeline problem of all older people having the good jobs and young people butting their heads up against it, one way to get around that is to actually just go out on your own and create your own opportunities. But things like financing are a real problem for young people because if you don't own a house, you haven't got anything to borrow against, bank won't lend you money, you just can't start a business. It's pretty much as simple as that. So looking at ways that you might finance uh, young people with their businesses and income contingent loans and things like that is another opportunity. Um, and then, you know, really practical things like rent uh, laws and how we treat renting in a, in a country. If people can't afford to buy houses, they're going to be renting for another 20 years. At the moment, I think we all know how shitty it is to be a renter and your landlord comes through at any time and says, take that down off the walls and you've chipped the paint so you owe us half your bond and all that sort of thing. In other countries like Germany, they have a much more pro-tenant approach, which means that even if you are renting, you can still actually have a home and have it feel like you, you know, you're part of that community and you belong there. So those are the practical solutions, but like I say, none of those things can happen unless you've got people engaging with the system to make them happen because the institutions that we have in front of us are dominated by older people and therefore they are also dominated by the interests of older people. And until you get more young people coming through the pipeline, both the formal political pipeline and then also just the general, you know, engagement in the community, none of that stuff's going to change. Is the way to change things, though, is that system capable of moving fast enough? Because we are, there's some things that we do have a bit of time on, there's some things we really do not have any time on, mm. uh, you know, energy policy being mm -hmm. one of them. Is that system capable of changing fast enough or do we need something from outside of that system to change it? Because if you're, uh, you know, an old white dude and they're all pretty much all old white dudes um, who's best mates with, a, you know, a mining company uh, who's, you know, mining company paid for all their, um, you know, campaigns, you're going to make decisions that, you know, favour those people or the people that you know or the people you've always known. 
Um, so you're barely ever going to make any decisions that, you know, favour something that might be good for the whole community, certainly when it comes to clean energy. Is the way to, around that to start something completely on the outside of it? Is the way around that through some sort of, you know, corporate, you know, move or something like that or someone creating some sort of NGO within mm. the country? Oh, look, I think the with big problems like, you know, clean energy policy or employment or any of kind of the really big challenges we have in front of us, we need to tackle them from lots of different fronts. I mean, my personal perspective as someone who has worked in politics and it's kind of, it's what I know, obviously the political channels are the ones that I kind of tend to focus on. But yeah, absolutely. People starting NGOs, people um, pushing from the outside, all of that works because it all brings together a focus on issues which haven't had enough attention up till now. But I mean, you look at an issue like climate change and, and energy policy, it seems like a crisis now, but it's it's a crisis because we have spent 10 years sort of stuffing around on what the solutions might be. And one of the things that's really valuable about younger people is that we have a long-term perspective. We have a long time horizon. And you saw that in the um, British vote on uh, Brexit. Younger people voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU. Older people voted overwhelmingly to get out because older people had this quite short time horizon in front of them, which was, you know, do I feel like in the next 10 years things will be better or worse if Britain is in the EU? And they decided that it didn't. Whereas younger people were thinking, okay, 20, 30, 40 years from now, how are our interests best served? Obviously, they're served by being part of a broader global community. And so that longer time horizon, I think, is really useful in public policy and just generally. And so having more young people, whether it's, like you say, NGOs on the outside, um, people getting involved in politics on the inside, bringing that perspective to the conversation is so useful. But you, we, we have a system that is, what have I heard the term of phrase? NIMTO, not in my term of office. <laughs> There's so many projects. Like if there is one country in the world with the benefit from high-speed rail, it's bloody this one. <laughs> But it's never, ever, ever going to happen because it'll get finished when someone else is in power. And for that reason, you know, many other reasons, but for one, that's one of the reasons that people won't commit to it. How do we get around that sort of thing? Well, the other good thing about young people is that we're very optimistic. And, uh, you know, I think some of these projects and some of these problems need a bit of optimism brought to them, a little bit of um, big sky thinking. And I just think generally that's what young people bring to a conversation is is not a sense of, oh, we've been over this issue a hundred times before and it didn't happen that time, so it can't happen this time. Uh, a fresh perspective and an optimism about what's possible are two things that young people bring. But if they can't get the equity to build it, if they can't <laughs> change policy to allow stuff to happen. I mean, the only, I guess... It's, t it's taken a lot and there was a lot of protest and there was a lot of anger about it but, and it took an overseas company to do it but Uber coming to this country and Uber now, only just now, have they made it legal in, in, in Brisbane. Is that an example of the way that a, a company or a way of doing business from outside an industry can change an industry that you think could go for other um, industries? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think that's an interesting example where in this case it's worked out well. So you've had a what is essentially a huge global firm come in and decide to completely disrupt an industry and change the way we do transport. And in this instance, the outcome has been pretty good for consumers. You know, we get cheaper rides more often, you know, more available. But I'm not necessarily sure that you'd want that to be the model for everything because you take, you know, you re replace Uber with, um, you know, I'm not going to pick an industry, but an industry that you don't agree with and you think about a major global company from that industry coming in and, you know, 
flouting all the rules and completely disrupting the way we do things with Australian workers and Australian companies. I'm not sure we'd all be as comfortable with that if it was something that didn't directly advantage us, you know, when we're trying to get home after a night out. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. So what kind of Australia do you want? What kind of Australia do you want for your son? I want him to live in a country where he feels like things are possible. I think one of the biggest differences between my generation and my parents' generation is when we look at the future, we see all the things that we won't necessarily have. So we won't necessarily have the kind of secure jobs throughout our careers that our parents had. We'll have to continually be hustling and moving around and piecing things together. We won't necessarily have the house that's big enough to tend all our kids in and the weekender shack down the coast that they had and that we were able to go to and have all our happy summer memories in. Uh, We will spend a lot more time, you know, commuting around the place than actually being at home with our families. And what I would really like for him is to see possibility rather than obstacles when he looks at what his future looks like, because I think that's really where my generation struggles now is, is we see all the obstacles in front of us rather than um, the sense of optimism that our parents had. What's there to be optimistic about, though? I mean, you <laughs> turn on the telly every day and, you know, people are making a lot of money making the public feel afraid. What's there to be optimistic about? That's an interesting question. I mean, I personally am optimistic that none of the problems that we face are permanent or intractable. I'm personally very optimistic that if we think hard about it and we organise as a community and each of us actually takes some responsibility for tackling these problems, that they're absolutely solvable and that we can have an Australia where older people do well and younger people do well. Because it's not about taking from someone else to give to young Australians. It's about saying, how do we rebalance out the SKUs which are currently taking away from younger people to make sure that there is this equitable distribution of opportunity. So I'm I'm actually very optimistic that we can fix the problems. Currently, though, I am not very optimistic about where we get to if we don't act to solve them, which is why I think, you know, a bit of a long pause there thinking about what there is to be optimistic about. (laughs) Yeah. So what are some things that we could do fairly easily given the current political will because you ultimately to do anything you need to have the people behind you Mm -hmm. otherwise people will throw you out Mm. um what given the current political will in our country what are some things that we could do fairly easily I think um, education and training is a really big one. It's, it's very hard to be against the idea of young people getting good skills and good training. Um, you know, the vocational education system in Australia is an absolute mess at the moment and one quite easy thing to do, easy in the sense of, um, as you say, political will, would be to really look hard at how we make sure those 60% of young people who don't go to university get really good skills so that they can move through their lives with the confidence that they'll be able to continue to have a job. Something that I think shouldn't be politically contentious, but obviously is, is that question of housing affordability as well. Um, I've been really surprised since the book came out how much even people in my parents' generation come and say, oh, actually, I'm, I'm really concerned about affordability as well. I mean, I own three houses, but I worry about how my kids are going to afford a house. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I may have to help them into the housing market. And you sort of say, well, do you think the fact that you own three houses is a contribution to the fact that your kids can't own a house? And then you start unpacking that problem and it becomes clear pretty quickly that there are a few settings that we have in our system which really incentivise 
older people owning three houses and make it very hard for a younger person to own one. And if we could get the will across the community to address that particular issue, we'd be going a very long way. And so, for example, you're talking, you're talking about negative gearing and, and that our, our uh, taxation system favours those who own homes and they're paying the things off at a loss, paying the mortgages off at a loss. Are you saying that we might do a little better if we limited the amount of properties or limited that to only being on new construction and stuff like that? Yeah. So there's, I mean, very smart people have spent a fair bit of time looking at negative gearing and capital gains because it's quite unusual in Australia's tax system, the setup that we have compared to overseas. And so there's a range of different ways that you could tackle it. But the one that I particularly like is the idea of uh, putting it only on new properties. So you can negatively gear, but only if you're building a new property. The reason I really like that is because it creates jobs at the same time. Uh, I think it's about 97% of the money that goes into housing investment goes into existing properties, so buying houses that we've already built. Whereas if you channel it into actually building new houses, then not only are you getting you know more housing supply, but you're actually creating jobs. And the construction sector employs, I think, about a million Australians currently, and those are good jobs that are skilled and you know require. Um, training and mm. people who do those jobs actually get you know good experience to continue moving on through their careers, which is you know the kind of jobs I'd like to see people have. And so it's kind of a double whammy there, where instead of having a policy that constrains supply and means people can't buy a house, you have a policy that increases supply and grows jobs at the same time. And so, what about the the I've referred to it a few times. What about the the clean energy? What about uh, carbon emissions? What what's an easy thing that we could do? within the current climate, mm. I'm not talking within another election for it, yep. what is something that easy, fairly easily that we could do right now? Yeah, so, I mean, renewables investment, again, is a really useful area, both in terms of growing jobs and addressing a problem that we have, which is that, you know, we can't keep producing energy the way that we have been if we care about tackling climate emissions. And something that is really good now, I think, is that we've got to a position in Australia where we have an, an understanding of renewable energy targets so far. And so, you know, they play a really important role in driving the investment that we need because if people know, right, the federal government has this target to say we want this much renewable energy produced. Um, now, of course, in Labor, we'd say it needs to be higher, but... Uh, if you have those policies in place, then overseas companies or companies in Australia, they say, right, well, we're going to build a solar farm, we're going to build a wind farm, we're going to build a, you know, a wave power farm. And that creates jobs. And then it also continues to scale up the clean energy side of things so that we can eventually start phasing out some of the stuff which is more problematic. And you mentioned earlier um, getting involved in the Senate inquiry process about getting on. How, how, if people are listening, they're like, you know what, today's the day, I'm listening to this podcast, I'm, I'm upset about this or that or the other, what's, in, what's the easiest way to, to feel like you're making a difference other than the vote you have every four years? Sure. There's two things. Uh, the first thing would be find out who your local member is and ring them up or write them an email. And don't send them a form email, you know, um, dear sir, madam, here are 500 words I ripped off the web from my favourite environmental charity because, frankly, those all get filed in the mass email file and they're much less likely to be responded to. Send an email that explains who you are, uh, where you've come from, what it is that you care about, what you think should be done about it, and then ask some questions. Because if you ask a question to an MP or to an organisation, they feel much more compelled to engage with you um, as an individual rather than as kind of a problem to be given a pat response to. 
Um, the other thing I would say is go to www.aph.gov.au and just have a look at the list of current Senate inquiries and House of Reps inquiries that are going on because they happen all the time and they cover all sorts of things from uh, banking and financial services, clean energy, social services, you name it, there's usually an inquiry going on into it. And you can actually then just put in a submission and, again, explain what it is that you think should be done on that issue Uh, and then sometimes if your submission is compelling enough um, you might even get invited to come and give evidence directly to the committee and have your voice be heard in the room. Really? Yeah. Because here I think if I send my email, I mean I I live in, uh, we live in Wentworth here so Malcolm Turnbull is our guy. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time believing that my email that I write, even if I don't rip it off GetUp or one of those other websites, I have a hard time believing that my email will actually be read by someone and will actually be taken, maybe we should respond to it. But there are people, that's their whole job. That's what they do. They, our system is really useful in that there are people at the other end waiting to hear from you and you won't always get the response that you want and sometimes you will feel like you're being brushed off. But I think people get put off too easily by this sense, oh, no one's listening. People are absolutely listening. And I would say again, the fact that big business and unions and uh, other big organisations that kind of have an institutional stake in the system do all this stuff means that it does work because, you know, they are smart and savvy and have a lot of money. If they didn't think it worked, they wouldn't do it. So the idea that um, you shouldn't get involved because it won't make any difference, if you see a big business doing it, then, you know, do it too. Right. It all seems so scary and so overwhelming though <laughs> to, because that, that, I guess that's the other thing is that I don't consider myself to be very clever when it comes to these things, and I'm always afraid of getting into an argument with, with, <laughs> with, with someone who has been in university and has a political science degree or a law degree and has 20 years of, of shouting down their opponent in parliament. Mm. I'm always afraid of that. And, and so I, I'm afraid to expose myself to it, I guess. Yeah, but the one thing that you would bring that that person doesn't bring is a different perspective. So you talked before about people who haven't, you know, gone to university and known the right people to call all the time or been able to get out of any situation because they had the right contacts or any of that. Yeah. That perspective, that life experience of coming from a different background is actually really valuable and people, when you explain where you're coming from and, you know, if it's an issue that you're passionate about, there's obviously something that you've got some experience of, that lived experience is just as valuable as someone who, you know, has read about the issue at university, certainly more so, I would say. So we're, 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 we're rounding out to the, to the hour mark, so I'll, I'll let you go because it's a beautiful day and I don't want you to be stuck in here all day. Uh, the, the, the book is Generation Less, How Australia is Cheating Its Young, it's full on. Um, how can how can I make a young person feel less cheated today? <laughs> <laughs> I think you should uh, have another young person on the program who hasn't written a book. I think you should have a young person on the program who, I don't know, does a trade or who works at a cafe downstairs on this beautiful Bondi beach uh, and spend an hour talking to them about what they think about where we're headed and what their solutions would be because I think they'd be pretty different from mine and we probably might not even agree on what the problems are but uh, that, you know, you could use this platform as a way of giving young people another chance to be heard. But here's the thing, I'm already going, why would I get the bloke from the cafe that I'm thinking of He's just going to talk about who didn't shag him on Tinder the other night and because he's 22. That's what he's doing. He's out having sex with people and, so, and you know, spending his money on fancy T-shirts. <laughs> you don't have a lot of respect for the young. <laughs> but 
if you asked him as well, if you said to him, okay, you know, you work down at the cafe, tell me about what it's like to, you know, do you get enough hours every week? And he'd probably say, no, actually, I don't get enough hours every week. Some weeks I get all the hours and some weeks I get none and it's really hard to make my pay stretch in between it. And then you'd say, well, right, well, what do you do when your pay doesn't stretch that far? And he'd say, oh, I have to rely on my credit card. And, you know, there's a lot of experience, lived experience, which reflects the academic research in my book, which I think we should also be hearing from because... Um, people like me who can run the numbers is one set of perspectives, but hearing from people who are much more directly living these trends. Mm. You know, I'm old and decrepit now. I'm 30, so I'm, you know, moving past the... 30s where everything gets awesome, trust me. <laughs> everything gets so much more awesome after 30, I promise you. I'll remember that. But, you know, hearing from, as you say, 22-year-olds have a lot to offer because they are the ones who are right now being affected by these trends. They are the ones that Australia is cheating. But how come I don't hear anybody talking to them when it, we just had an election about a month and a half ago? I don't hear anybody talking to them. All I hear is them talking to people who are homeowners and people who are, Medicare's going to run away if you don't. Like, I don't hear anybody talking to them during elections. I think during elections are a bad time to look at politics, actually, because they're so much focused on two people, you know, the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. If you look more generally at what goes on in our political system, it's a lot of local members and local activists being out in their communities having conversations with people. You just don't really see that when the cameras are following two guys around the country for eight weeks. Yeah. I did have a very interesting experience helping my friend James uh, campaign for yeah. the seat of Warringah. It was, uh, and I've talked about this on the show before, it was, it was very, very easy. I was up at um, two different primary schools up in that seat and you could tell within three steps inside the school gate by the way they walked. <laughs> you could tell, simple. You could tell by the way they walked, that person's a Liberal voter. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about them? A self-entitled gate. <laughs> a certain swagger. Uh, I own this land, that sort of thing. What was the most interesting experience that you had during the campaign? Uh, when Tony Abbott showed up. Yeah. And I, I filmed him <laughs> and I said, oh, are you worried about James Matheson? And he's either very quick or he's completely bland. Either of them is awesome. He goes, I worried about all my constituents. Ah, uh, very good. <laughs> um, I said, he's running against you. And he just ignored me. Um, <laughs> And watching him walk, he walks penis first when he walks, which is... It's an interesting observation. Yeah. I've never noticed that about him. Yeah, he walks like with this swagger of, yes, it belongs to me. You just don't know it yet. His penis belongs to him? No, no, no. <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is that you're talking about, it, it, it's mine already. You just don't mm. know it yet. Like he has that kind of confidence about him, which mm. I envy. That would be hard to go up against <laughs> as another candidate, I would Oi. think. As James, you'd be sort of, you know, feeling a little bit put off by that, I would have thought. Call it, man. Hey. Hey. What are you barking at, bro? There's nothing out there. It's laundry. You guys would have had quite the advantage, though, over the year's bog standard candidate in that at least you can draw, you know, draw a bit of a crowd and draw some media attention wherever you go. <laughs> well, there was about 10 people running for that seat, I think, Yeah. on that day. Mm. It was really, it was really very fascinating <laughs> watching just the people who were Liberal voters Um Watching the demographics, unfortunately, it was exceedingly stereotyped. Mm. It was, they are Warringah, Lower North Shore mm. candidates. <laughs> Oi. Um, you know, they were, you know, you could hear the, hear the, hear the keys from every one of their investment properties jangling in their pockets. <laughs> you know, still wet feet from putting their boat in the marina. <laughs> Frankie, I'm trying to talk. It's just laundry. You want to go out and check it out? Come on. 
Um, yeah, it was fascinating. And it did make me think, it did make me wonder, you know, watching James, particularly when James went up against Andrew Bolt uh, on the telly, um, I don't know if I'd be calm enough to do that. Mm. I get very, uh, like him, I get very riled up mm. and I tend to get very upset when I'm met with, Frankie, can you please call it? What happens is I get so, I get so riled up when I'm mm. met with um, just gobsmacking stupidity. Uh, for example, the other night on the telly, there was one of the One Nation senators talking about, no, it's an international climate conspiracy in which thousands of scientists are involved. I was like, do you have any idea how dangerous it is that you say that on television? But also, how are you thinking that? You know, and I'm, I've got to get so freaked out that when I do open my mouth to speak to them, I end up sounding just as loony, but just the other side. <laughs> and so people don't listen. And yeah. I worry about that. Yeah, I mean, getting involved in any kind of public debate, I guess you've got to take that longer term view that, you know, yeah, I might want to crush you right now with all of the ways in which you're wrong. But actually, there's a broader issue at stake here, which is, you know, we need to have a civilised conversation about our mutual challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, uh, who's in politics right now that you think is worth looking at? Who's like the, like that, that person's, despite all of the, the bullshit that goes on, that person is doing some really great work in this country. Oh, I think there's a, a range of them. And actually, there's a bunch of really young people, young, certainly young by parliamentary standards, in the parliament at the moment who are both changing the way that it works because they're sort of bringing both, you know, digital savvy, but then also just a general sense that we need to do things differently to the parliament and then also an understanding of what people's lives are actually like when you're young. So that's people like Sam Dastiari in New South Wales, um, Tim Watts in Victoria, Claire O'Neill. Uh, these are people who are young like us and understand what our problems are and have actually got a real focus on trying to solve them and are not buying this argument that you have to sort of become an old white man in order to fix a problem. They are acknowledging that you can do things a completely different way and try and solve the problems in front of us. That makes me happy. <laughs> I know I did say that was my last question about five questions ago, but I just wanted to get to that bit. I wanted to get to the bit where I was like, okay, all right. Because at the moment, yeah, I look at it and I see if you're not an old white dude, you're going to get nothing done. Mm. Um, but I'm glad to hear that it is changing ever so slowly, but it is changing. <laughs> well, progress takes time. But as I say in the book, change happens when we take responsibility for making it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> love it. Thanks so much for coming around. Sorry the dog was barking. Thank you for having me. Hi, no worries. I'm going to take your photo real quick. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool, sweet. That was Dr. Jen Rayner. Her book is called Generation Less, How Australia is Cheating the Young. You can find her on Twitter at JR underscore Rayner. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting the show. If you do on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher. Uh, another great way to support the show is just tell a friend. That's the best thing you can do. Tell a friend and, uh, you know, let them know how to how to listen to the show. I do like to give away a set of exclusive episodes to uh, one lucky reviewer each week. Uh, if you do write a review for the show, somehow that combines with uh, downloads, podcast downloads, and it helps us get up on the iTunes charts, which really helps, really helps uh, more people find out about the show. And so this week I'm going to give the... 
special, 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 special guests, special extra podcasts to... I'm just going to flip my mouse around and it's going to land on you. Uh... Oh, this person's name is not fully tested yet. Uh, if that's you, send me an email, send Osher email at gmail.com. I've been binge listening to this since I heard Osher on Willosophy. Oh, on the Will Anderson show. A lot of people came here from that way. Osher really opens up about himself, but he gets a new interesting guest each week. Always worth a listen, even when I haven't heard of them before I listen. That's the best thing he could have said. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you wrote that. Because that's basically what I try to do. Even if you don't know who the people are, I'm really grateful that you are able to listen uh, and, and, and get something out of it. So thanks heaps for that. Not fully tested yet. Send me an email and I'll hook you up with those exclusive episodes. All right, got to get out of here. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. I love you like Johnny loves Chachi. That is an old reference that no one will get. Until I talk to you next week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.